You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. This episode is presented by John Jacob. The London Festival of American Music runs from the 13th to the 18th of September at the Warehouse in Waterloo, central London. Now, in its eighth year, the festival brings a diverse range of American composers, artists and performers, well known in their native country, to the attention of a UK audience who wouldn't otherwise be aware of them. The person behind the festival is the same person who, in the 1980s and 90s, played a key role in raising awareness of the music of Dame Ethel Smythe, like this, the serenade used here and written in 1890 when Smythe was 32. Decades before diversity finally became something organisations were rightly held accountable for, Dame Ethel Smythe had, in the guest for this podcast episode, a passionate advocate. And all you need to know about that advocate is summed up in the following clip. The name is Odalina de la Martinez, they call me Chachi. I am a composer conductor. I also had a record label and I record a lot of works by women, Latin American music and living composers. And I also have a festival called the London Festival of American Music, which begins tonight. And this year, as other years, is about diversity. Diversity in every sense of the word, racial diversity, um, geographical diversity, transgender diversity, everything you can think of. How do you relax? At the end of the day, I watch television. It's very good for your eyes, because if you spend a lot of time working like this, you relax your eyes by watching television. What is the most recent thing you've seen on television that you've really enjoyed? The most recent thing that what? Watched on television that you've really enjoyed. I watched some... I would, yes. Can I say the word crappy? Some crap. I really like crappy American programs like NCIS. Okay. Because <laughs> because of all things, even of everything that happens, the good guy and the good girl win at the end. It's and always I a like happy that. ending. Yes. It always means that the good guy wins at the end, or the good girl. Although a girl can be a guy too. Celebrity Master Chef. I started out in the first place, but it got boring after a while. Okay. I tell you, the dancing one. Yeah. Strictly come dancing is fantastic. Oh. Tell me, what brings you joy? Making things happen, to be honest. Making things happen in music. My own music and other people's music. It gives me real joy to see things taking off and seeing things grow. Like um, plants, like music, like everything, you know. How much, how much effort is involved, do you feel, in making that happen? The effort is never the music making. The music making ends up being the easiest. The hardest making it happen. In other words, um, organizing it, uh, raising the money, you know, all the bits that go with making an event or a series of events happen, that's the hard part. Because you've always got things happening that you never expect, no matter how well in advance you plan, no matter how much you do in advance and you think, ah, oh, easy now, it isn't. You are someone who clearly needs to be involved in every aspect of an event. Not necessarily. I do because the more people that work for you, the more time it takes, because you've got to talk to them about, check that it's all done right. But if you only have two or three people working for you, in terms of the admin part, it makes life a lot easier. Uh, tell me where we are. And I mean, 
we could do now. some we could do with some description actually about this room. We are now what you would call backstage of the warehouse because they're re- rehearsing in the main stage. If you want to call the warehouse a huge stage, they're rehearsing in there, and we're trying to avoid all that music. <laughs> uh, and what do we? What are we surrounded by? We're surrounded by boxes of music, boxes I can see here, boxes of accounts, boxes of um, also chairs, music stands, lights, you name it. We're surrounded by that, but it's very quiet, and there's some good light. <laughs> uh, tell me what's going on this week. Could I have my... Yes, you can. I'm sorry, I I took your list of things away from you. but uh, It's a leaflet. It's a printed leaflet. Well, the week is about diversity, and I think that's the most important thing. And it's something that we've been doing all along. We're not just taking a ride on the latest bus. We've been doing it all along. But this festival is all about diversity. It begins with the concept of black culture in the U.S. and in Cuba. And it's really important because it features, one of the features is the poet Langston Hughes. But Langston Hughes wasn't just an American poet. He affected a lot of people. He began the black culture movement, which was called Negritude, or Negrismo in Spanish. And what it did, it just pushed the idea of black culture. It became in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And for example, one of the uh, people who met Langston Hughes was Nicolas Guillén. And I've done a set of poems by Nicolas Guillén. And the whole idea was to bring the rhythm of the word. So in the case of Nicolas Guillén, he wrote Afro-Cubans. You know, there's no such thing as Cuban music, Cuban anything. It's all Afro-Cuban. The African and, and white race, if you want to call it that, the African and European race in Cuba is so mixed, so mixed that there's no such thing. Even musicologists have said for many, many years there's no such thing. And so what uh, Nicolas Guillén did in his own way, he listened to people and he listened to the way his own Afro-Cuban people uh, spoke and he wrote poems about it, and they're charming. They're full of humor, oh, they're full of teasing, they're full of sassiness, they're full of everything. And that's what I, one of the, you know, I've, I've taken four poems. It's taken from a book called Motivos de Son, S-O-N. And Son in Cuba is a kind of um, melody, melody based on both African descent and European descent. So it's all about dancing and about movement, you know. I know you're seeing me dancing and I can see your eyebrows going up. And so, um, yeah. And so I took four poems from this set of eight and I set them. And you can hear the rhythm. If you only just heard the poems, you would think he was singing or she was singing, whoever was doing it. But this is poems set to music. When I hear you talk about this, the first question that comes up in my mind is that if there is no such thing as Cuban music because it's a mix, it's an amalgamation. Does that suggest that in Cuba there is a more enlightened view towards race? Perhaps. Perhaps there is. I mean, during the uh, Castro years, and I am no political, there was a more enlightened view to race. But, you know, race. Subject to the same sort of tensions that, say, are present in the UK. It's a different thing. I mean, um, there were slaves, there were enslaved people that came to Cuba, and they were liberated around the same time as in America in the 1860s. But it is so where um, African, uh, African Americans are only 20% of the population. In Cuba, Everybody's so mixed. The speech is so mixed. In my own little town where I lived, you heard people speaking what I would call Afro-Cuban. And so when I read the poems, I recognized the speaking that I heard all the time. You aspirate your S's. You don't pronounce your R's. You swing it like, for example, bucate plata. 
búscate plata. And it's just saying, go get some money, you know. Or zapato nuevo, tanto reloj, new shoes, what a lovely... <laughs> You see? And it's all about casual things. It's about usually a man and a woman. And in this particular case, Bucate Plata, she's telling her lover, get some money because I'm starving, you know? Otherwise, I'm going. And it turns out he's got new shoes, he's got a new beautiful uh, watch. And so where is the money going, I wonder? You see? That kind of thing. Another one, if I, can I tell you about yes. it? Another one is called Tu no sabes inglés. And it's uh, con tanto inglés que tú sabía, con tanto inglés que tú sabía, Vito Manuel. And it says, with all the English that you said you knew, with all the English that you said you knew, you don't even know how to say yes. And yes in Afro-Cuban is J. All the English, uh, all the English that you know is about one, two, three. Strike one, two, three. And you can imagine what that means. Strike one, two, three. And of course. Baseball in Cuba has always been big. And if you look at the rosters of baseball players in America, a lot of them are Cuban and eventually Latin Americans. And so big. So this woman, this American woman is looking for him because she fancies him, you know. And so his uh, ex-lover, you might say, or his ex-girlfriend, Afro-Cuban girlfriend says, you better not, you better run away from that American lady because she's going to find out that you don't speak any English, that all you do is one, two, three. Uh, the next one um, is about Sigue, follow. And again, it's a man talking to another man. If you see her pass by your, by your house, don't talk to her. Don't tell her you know me. Keep walking because she is no good. She's no good. It is a theatrical language. Yes. When you Even when you translate it, there is theatrics in in all of it. Yes. And, and it's the way I speak as well. I speak up and down, up and down, and that's part of the Afro-Cuban language. And and the last the last one that I said is called mi chiquita, and of course you got chiquita bananas, and it's got nothing to do with chiquita banana. Chiquita means my little lady, and it's 1930s Cuba, and in 1930s Cuba it was a very male chauvinist. Whether it was there's such thing as what you would be called white or mixed or Afro-Cuban or whatever you like, and so he's saying I am so happy. I have this chiquita who is wonderful. The way she washes clothes, the way she sews, the way she irons, and how she cooks. And it's a very joyful song, but it just makes you smile with a little twig in your eyes. Is that what you say? A little thing in your eyes? Because he loves this woman. And of course, it becomes very sexual at the end. Whenever they ask her to go out to eat or to go dancing, she comes and get me. She comes to get me every time she loves me so much. But then she comes and says, come on, come on, come on, let's go enjoy. And that's the end. It's wonderful. There is an opera in this festival, which yes. I'm particularly excited about, and also annoyed that I can't come to any any of the performances so because from the <clears throat> from the press release, it is fascinating and timely. Yes. Can you tell me what it's about? It's called As One, and it's about the journey of a young man transgendering to be a young woman, and it's a set of scenes. And then you follow it. That young boy, he's only 12 and he's throwing newspapers as boys do in their bicycle. And underneath his shirt, he's wearing a blouse. So from that age, he already knew he felt he was a woman. And so you get a progression through life, through university, throughout how he, becoming she, hides it. How he, uh, you know, and eventually is what they call, you know, I was just talking in tune to Sean. And he said, it's about love, isn't it? About, about being in love. I said, it's about somebody in love with two different parts of herself, really, eventually became a she. And one of the librettists actually went through that. Um, uh, Kimberly Reed, Kimberly Reed, who did actually the film, was actually one of the librettists. And it was about her life, really. A lot of it is about it. And it's a matter of uh, finding in yourself 
the love of yourself that you need to accept yourself as you are. So it isn't just about transgender, it's about self-acceptance. And uh, she tries, and finally, she's far away in some little country, well, Norway, in the middle of nowhere, as she says, in a cabin in the middle of nowhere. And she begins to realize that for several days she's been feeling herself because she's got nothing to hide from other people. And then she realizes she's found herself. But it's beautiful. It's a transgender story, yes. And we have Hannah before, who's baritone. We've got Hannah after, who's a mezzo-soprano, and what we call liminal Hannah, which we added. It's not even in the original libretto or in the original score, but we have permission from the creators. And it's a dancer and choreographer who's sometimes expressing with her dance, Jari Glavin, she's expressing with her dance what's going on emotionally with both of them. It's very moving and it's very touching and it makes you really ask yourself time and time again, are you happy with who you are? Are you happy with who you are? Are you, John? <laughs> well, I was <laughs> until, until you asked the question three times and now I'm beginning to think, I wonder whether I need to have a meeting with myself. Uh, you, are, um, you are one of only two people I know who have used the word liminal and I think it's the most beautiful word. Uh, I love it. How has working on this production challenged you? Oh, how has it challenged Well, it's, it's so different. Actually, I must give credit to the stage director, Ben Davis, who actually brought up the word liminal. And I don't know if your people know what liminal is, but it's a term that people in psychology use it a lot, isn't it? As it's something within something, you know, it's the... the, 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 the something that's on the edge. Yes, yeah, something that's on the edge, as in subliminal underneath, yes. and liminal is on the edge, something there. Uh, and uh, it has affected me because it's... I think we all, all of us in the whole world, being human, are imperfect in our associations with people, in our the way we perceive other people, the way we are honest about ourselves, the way how most of us are in the closet about something, something you haven't told anyone about, and the closet is there. And I think the fact that this young boy, age 12, actually had to wear a blouse, and oh, sometimes he says, I used to get my socks and put them underneath to make them look like breasts. This is a 12-year-old, because all the girls in his school were doing that. And even his handwriting, he has to adopt his handwriting because his teacher said, no, 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 that's not a boy's writing, that's a, that's a girl's writing. But by the end, this woman now has accepted herself and there's something that affects all of us, every single one of you, you and the people who are listening to your podcast. I notice that you have skillfully heard my question, attempted to, to answer it and then answered something else. So what, what have you found about this production that has challenged you? I think knowing that we all have prejudice, I think that's a challenge, and all of us, all of us have prejudices. And I mean, I would like to think I'm very unprejudiced, but every time I think I am unprejudiced, I'm, I'm not, I am. I am prejudiced to some degree, not necessarily about transgender people. I mean, I, yeah. I was prejudiced about women composers for a long time. I had no idea. Were you? Really? Yes, I was. And then uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, because I did so many women's music, I didn't know why. Not enough, really. I was approached to put an orchestra of women in an orchestra. And somebody offered me uh, a word of Ethel Smythe who I'd never heard of before. And I thought, well, let's try it. And it's realizing that the, the sort of uh, discrimination on the life that Ethel Smythe went through and then recognizes, uh, recognizing for myself the lot of ways that I, here I am a woman, I'm a composer, you know. I wasn't really giving women enough credit 
women composers. You understand? But I, but I, so I have done some research, as you would probably expect me to have done, and I think the thing that surprised me was that you were doing that many, many Liminally. decades. Liminally. No, but many decades yes, before... Without- before that, and I, you know, I have to pick my words really carefully because I'm white, male, middle-aged, privileged. Um, oh, don't be hung up on that. But but <laughs> but I am, yeah. you know, and that is a statement of fact. But you were doing it many many decades before it became something that everybody coalesced around. Absolutely. And yet you still say that you were prejudiced, and well, I sort I'm, of feel I'm, a little bit sad about that. I would that, like really. to think I'm not anymore. Yeah. I think I would like to think that once I put the orchestra together and realised, and I've read just about it, Smythe wrote about 10 books of 11 volumes, I think I've read most of them, including the one about her dogs. Oh, <laughs> she okay. had three dogs with the same name. Okay. And so I realised that a lot of the things she was describing were happening to all of us. And the fact that someone, some of us were not getting the same chances was because we were women. And that realization made me aware of the fact that I was probably being just as prejudiced as everybody else. And I think we just have to accept to ourselves, all of us, every day if we can possibly face it, that we are, like I said earlier, we are imperfect, we are inhuman, and the best thing that can happen to us is to be aware of our own prejudices. Blah, 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 I can't even say it. No. To be aware of our own prejudices, to be aware of our own little closets, or big ones. But doesn't that also require you to be quite forgiving of oneself? That's it, and that's the trick. And that's the trick. When you deal with people who can't accept the fact that they've made a remark that sounds so sexist, or sounds so racial, and they don't realize it. They think that they're good people, they think that they have no uh, uh, prejudices, things like that, and then all of a sudden something comes out and you're going, oh my God, me too. Me too, and it takes me to a point of Langston Hughes. (laughs) So I'm still interested about that recording. I think it was on Chandos, and you did it with, you did the Ethel Smythe with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So what... How did that come about? Was that you going, no, I want to do... Because that's the assumption with the recording. Or did somebody go, no, I think it would be a good idea if you did this. Actually, I offered it to a guy who was working for the RVW Trust at the time. And I said, look, can we raise some money to do this? And he didn't have to think twice. He came straight ahead and he said, we're going to sponsor this. And he went to Shandos and sponsored it. But then I had done the Smythe numerous times in numerous countries. So I had a chance to play with it and correct mistakes. I mean, I have a, a new edition, well, a relatively new edition in the 2000, 2000 and something of the Smythe because I discovered mistakes. I discovered uh, crescendi put in the, long, in the wrong place. I discovered all sorts of things. And, and it's, it, was opening the, it was opening the world to me, really, finding out that this fantastic piece of music was only the door to Ethel Smythe. The door. So... I have to ask this, because if I don't, I will listen back to this and go, if only you asked this. How do you look on the on the wave of positive action that has been taken over the past few years in ter- within the classical music world? I think if I was you, I'd be looking at it and thinking, well, at last, finally, everybody else has cottoned on. Well, my attitude is even more different because I'm a little bit aware of the relationship of women composers and women in the arts all the way back to the Middle Ages. I don't know before that. And you see the same thing. You have um, all kinds of... During the Middle Ages, actually, women have a better position. They were almost equal to men, not quite, in terms of music, in terms of troubadours and troubarits. But what happens is what remains after. You saw it again. Um, there was a period in the 
1960s, after some of the wars in Germany, for example, they started getting women's orchestras going, and in Sweden, to give the women some work, because there's a lot of poverty at the time. You see it again at the time in the 19, 1918s, 19s, 1920s, when the suffragist movement becomes suffragette movement becomes really important. And all of a sudden, you see in the proms, women are featured in the proms, and you saw it again in the 60s when there was movements for women's rights. And I had said to somebody the other day on the radio or somewhere that women today have the right if they have a baby to have six months off. In the 60s, they didn't. And it's the fight of the women in the 60s. And the same thing is with the music. It's like a sine wave. And I've said that many times. It co- and I know other composers that agree. And other comp- women composers, and others say, no, it can't be, it can't be. We're more enlightened. We are more enlightened. But the thing is, the same thing with women conductors, by the way, and I'll come back to this enlightenment. Women conductors, when they first started coming, you see it at the early 20th century, the 30s and so more, they were really taking places. There's a wonderful film about a Dutch woman con- uh, conductor. She got all kinds of conducting techniques, but then she stopped being the latest, the latest bit, you know, the latest. And when she started being the most unique thing all around, it dropped off. So does that suggest that there will be a drop-off? That's what you I have. I cannot prove anything, but that's where I'm going. I'm going to say that it would be great if things remained the way they did, but you know, I don't think so. Uh, and so the answer, if yes. I may, to me, the answer is very important. The answer is to establish a collection of everything that needs to be done. I call it an archive recording. Recordings, that's why I record so many women composers. People publishing, they are, in this country, I believe five or six reference libraries that will take your music, Get it in there, because in a hundred years they're going to look back. And the same thing everywhere. Get, get the recordings in, get the, the pieces in, get the, the uh, musicological research in. Because in a hundred years, when they start looking back, they're going to try and find you. They're going to try and find you. And that's when they'll be able, even Ethel Smyth said it. Ethel Smyth said it, only a hundred years after I die, will people be able to judge the quality of my music. Okay, she died in 44. 1944. It's not 100 years. But I think even people now are beginning to realize the quality of her music. But it took years. I mean, if I told you when I went to do the records what the, what the state of the music was like, you know, you went into a box where the parts were there and you just picked up something like the trumpet part and it was just dripping. Literally, just in a terrible state. And even the score, thank God to, to John Drummond who, gave, uh, who hired an editor for about three months. First of all, she corrected the score to the records, you know, the opera, the records, and then she corrected the parts. You know, the situation was terrible. Now we've got things like um, Sibelius, where women can create their own scores and they look professional. Anybody can create it, obviously. And you can send these scores to the places that I mentioned. And I think that's the only way, creating an archive. By the way, the British Library have asked to have a collection of all the Lontano records. We're sending it to them, of course, free of charge. And what they do is they keep the original CD and they make a copy so they don't get ruined. So it will be there. When people are looking in 100 years, it will be there. And that's the most important thing we can do. Did you come from a large family? No. Um... No, uh, you mean because I fight for my rights? I was the firstborn. I didn't have to fight. <laughs> I was just, I was just thinking that um, you know, picking up on the the point you made to begin with mm. about you know the rhythm in language uh, and how that can have a sort of a musical effect and a theatrical effect, uh, and then that is reflected in the way in which you in, in the way in which you speak, and it's very lilting and it's very insistent and uh, and actually. <laughs> And actually really lovely because there's so much energy there. And what actually I was thinking was 
where does that energy come from? Did you have to battle to get attention? That's why I was asking you no. about the family size. You I, know, how I, did you get attention? I will admit I was terrible. Whenever anybody came in the house, I would start dancing because I love dancing. <laughs> and I guess that's how I got my attention. Do you still do that now? Oh, I love dancing, right. but I don't do it to get attention. <laughs> I don't do it. When somebody comes in my house, I don't start dancing. No, I was going to say, that would be a bit weird. That would be a bit weird. Um, uh, tell me what else is in the festival. Okay, so you've got the opera. You've got black culture on the Caribbean. We've got a two-piano duo that's coming from the University of Arizona. Wonderful. And they're doing all kinds of original music. A lot of women composers, they're, doing, they're featuring Danesha who's going to be next year, I think he's going to be 40. But they're also um, got a Korean composer called Yuan Yuan Hei, who's known as Kei Hei. A little piece for, not little, a piece for Kima, which is a tiny little, I believe it's South Korean instrument, so it's being uh, amplified, and piano. They're doing pieces by Gabriela Lena Frank, who's half Peruvian and half Jewish. They're doing a piece by Tanya Leon, who just won this year the Pulitzer Prize and they're doing it's all pieces for two pianos and it's they're wonderful they're, they're a wonderful wonderful two piano group and they're lovely they should have arrived by now do you not find so what what comes across is that your your passions your enthusiasm your energy is drawn from things that are certainly outside of my experience you know you have a far more global um uh, perspective on music which is why you put in loads of different styles do you not find the attitude of some in the UK completely the opposite to that. Well, that's I mean, their problem, not mine. But, you, but it is your problem if you're trying to get if you're People trying to gain to... attention because it's quite an insular country. I'm trying to get attention, but not through dancing. No, okay. <laughs> so, so your strategy is I won't dance, but but do you do you do you experience any frustration sort of gaining traction for the things that because you have a, a unique perspective? Well, I mean, there are people also who don't want to bother, but there's people who are very interested. There's a lot of people who are interested and, and are coming. We're suspecting that because of COVID, it's not going to be the large audience. We almost sold out every day last year. You can ask. <laughs> you know, it was almost sold out every day. Not last year, last festival. But I'm talking beyond the festival. You know, do you feel, because clearly your passions, your interests go beyond sort of Western classical music. That's why it's there is it's so much energy. I hear you. It's because I am a woman, because I am a composer, and because I'm not a Westerner. I am an Afro-Cuban person coming from the Afro-Cuban culture. Can I tell you about... I'm sorry, yes. No, no, no. This is really important because we released a CD of the last, the next to last uh, program. is called Black Renaissance Renaissance in this country in Harlem and Chicago. And it's by a wonderful pianist called Samantha Ege. We released a CD of her music earlier this year. I think it was March. And it's been a hit. Not only is it selling, it's, I think it's going to be nominated for a, a Grammy. We're waiting to hear. But she's been put up for a nomination. So she's doing a concert on the Thursday, the 16th. And it's a wonderful concert. It isn't just... And it was music, by the way, of Florence Price, who's another discovery. And I'm really pleased to be part of it. Because she's another one, another Afro-American composer who was neglected. And then all of a sudden, everybody's picking it up. She's doing other composers that were very important during what they call the Harlem Renaissance which was in Chicago and in Harlem, actually. And, and peop a lot of people claim that there was already a, a renaissance in Chicago long before it became in Harlem. And we're doing pieces by um, Zenobia Powell Perry, Betty Jackson King, Nora Holt, and of course, the Four Fantasy Negro by Florence Price. And she lived quite a life. To be able to get into the New, you know, into New England Conservatory, she pretended to be Mexican. 
Why did you come to the UK? To study. To be honest, I grew up in Cuba till I was 11. Then we were sent to America and then my parents joined us in the United States. I lived in the, in the States for 11 years, so that's 11 and 11. And then at the end of university, I got a whole lot of scholarships, probably because I was such a talker. <laughs> and so I went to the Royal Academy of Music that I had another scholarship to go to university. So I picked the University of Surrey and then I had a scholarship to do research in computer music, which I did. And by then it was nine or 10 years. And by the and it, and it's in the in the academy that I put together Lontano, and we were doing stuff that nobody was doing. Like everybody was doing what they call in those days pling plonk, but I discovered there were so composers in the seventy like George Crumb who were beginning to write tonal music. We were the first in the country to do George Crumb, and of course, the BBC heard us and immediately we started recording for the BBC, which was really good. We were still students, but we were good. You were still students, and you got At a recording contract. You got a recording contract. We didn't get a recording contract, but they invited us to do um, uh, lunchtime recitals, record some of our concerts. In those days, they had the money to have studio recordings, to record. Nowadays, they don't have that kind of money anymore. But I mean, already, as we were students, we must have been second or third year already, they were recording us. Nobody was doing that music. When you look back on your career, not that it's in any way over, but when you look back on I your career... I hope car- not. <laughs> no, indeed. Yes, Hackity Dog said the same thing uh, in a video clip. That will mean nothing to you. I'll explain that to you later. Um, but when you look back on your career to date, what are you most proud of? I have no idea. Oh, come I, on. No, no, honestly, because I, I hope I have longer. Because well, I think, yes. I think no, that's I why I say. To, but that's why I say to date. That's so you know. But can or or does that question make you feel uncomfortable? No, no. It's because I feel I haven't done enough. I feel I need at least twenty more years to do some more. Probably women composers. Probably. I, I don't know. Proud. You can use the word. I don't mind. I'm not trying to avoid the word. I think it's important to at least. At least I believe, I believe, and I could be wrong, I believe the renaissance, renaissance of Ethel Smythe. I've done a lot of um, Dame Elizabeth McConkie. I've done a lot of her, and I hope it's also a renaissance of her. Um, and a lot of women composers, and I think it's really important. And of course, the beginning of the American festival, which has been going now, this is the eighth one. I think it's really important because the whole issue of um, diversity is important. I'm a diverse person. I have said it 20 times. And so that is really important. And I think if people don't listen, that's there's nothing I can do. But I can just keep trying. I just want more time because I don't think I've done enough. I hope I don't die right away. I hope I last longer. As an out. As an out. That's, that's quite some out. Is there anything else that you'd like to say that I haven't asked you? No, I think that covers it all. You're a very nice man and you're a head. And you have a very nice sense of humour as well. It's very good. Oh, I love you. Um, uh, you're right, obviously. obviously. <laughs> um, the one thing I cannot do, so I need you to do it for me, is I cannot and will not pronounce your name. I'll do it. Odaline de la Martinez. But Chachi is what everybody calls me. Why? Because that's how it was from the moment I was a little girl. My mother had the my grandmother invented that name and gave it to my mother. So both my mother and I had the same name. How confusing is that? Well, that's why I got called Chachi. My middle name is Caridad, which translates as charity. Okay. Oh, every Cuban girl, the mothers always pray. Don't forget, Cuban was Catholic or is or whatever, and every Cuban girl um, who's going to have a baby prays to the Virgin Caridad of Cuba that if the baby is born healthy, somewhere in that name, they will be given the name Caridad. 
and she's the Virgin Saint of Cuba, and she's mixed, uh, racially mixed. And so um, everybody gives that name. I must have been born healthy, even if I like to dance. And uh, so I was given that middle name. And to separate me from my mother, I became Chachi. And it's so much easier. You see, you had to ask me, how do you pronounce my name? You see? You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast presented by John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore good on Instagram, and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on any half-decent podcast platform like Google or Amazon or Spotify, plus some others you might not have heard of. Thoroughly Good.